Let's read God's word together. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Let's read together. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The word of God to you this morning. You can be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to have all of you. Let me grab my bucket. You can say, you saw Chris kick the bucket this morning in the sermon, right? It's going to be one of those sermons. Um, Grateful to have all of you here today. We're continuing a, a, a series on the passage that you just heard and that you just read, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which is known as the Great Commission. And we're talking about finding and following Jesus and making a great commitment as a church to the Great Commission. And this, this series was sort of birthed about a year ago. I was reading a, um, a book and I came across a line in the book that, that sort of stopped me in my tracks. I don't know if you have uh, been reading at, at some point and come across a statistic or a data point or a, a line in a story that just made you stop. And on this one, uh, I, I underlined it and I highlighted it and I put a little dog ear on the page and I just kept coming back to it. And it, the truth is what I read bothered me. It really, it, it actually disturbed me. And I don't know, again, if you've come across something like that, been reading it, just something that just was so unsettling for you that you just kept thinking about it, you just kept coming back to it. And this was sort of the impetus for the series and this teaching and uh, understanding our mission as a church to help people find and follow Jesus. And it came from this, this line that I had underlined and just kept coming back to and that bothered me so much. Uh, it was a statistic and it says that only 17% of churchgoers in America know the Great Commission. So... of people who regularly attend church in the United States do not know the words that we just read together, the final words of Jesus to his church. And in the the last words of Jesus, these final instructions, Jesus gives the lasting mission of the church. Let me say that again. In the last words of Jesus, he gives the lasting mission of the church. And yet 83% of people in this country who go to church do not know those words. If we don't know the words that Jesus gave to frame up the mission of his church, the, the enduring purpose of, of what we're meant to be about as a church, as the people of Jesus, then what exactly are we, are we doing? What has church become? You know, we're, we're up against some, some dangerous factors in accomplishing this mission that Jesus gave to us. Let me just give a couple of them. 20% of Americans, only 20% of Americans today attend a local church. So you might think like, well, everybody's sort of, you know, we're in Charlotte. This is where Billy Graham was born and everybody goes to church. Well, no. And every day that goes, these are pre-COVID numbers, by the way. Only 20% of people in the United States attend a local church. So 80% of people do not. 
80% of Americans, listen to this, 80% of Americans under the age of 30 believes attending a local church is not important at all. So many people in our culture are saying yes to spirituality, maybe to Jesus, and no to the church. Spirituality is the realm of purpose, of value, and of meaning. The writer of Ecclesiastes put it this way, he said, God has placed eternity in the hearts of people. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us as we think about the way that people are wired, the way they were designed by God, that they're searching for value and meaning and purpose. And spirituality is the realm of purpose and mission. And so many people around us, our neighbors, are saying yes to spirituality in all kinds of forms. Some people are saying, maybe I'm interested in Jesus and how he can kind of check the box for that and and help me to find value and meaning and purpose in my life. And shockingly, Many people, most people in our own country are saying no to the church and what the church brings to the table. And it gets even more disturbing because that's today. But let me give you a couple of statistics. They sort of go along with this, this one that I read that stopped me in my tracks about the lack of understanding and knowledge of the mission of Jesus. To think about tomorrow. What does the future hold for the mission of Jesus and the mission of his people, the church? of millennials, so millennials being those who were born uh, from the early 80s to the late 90s, so approximately 22 to 41 years old. I'm right on the edge. I'm not quite in. 59% of millennials uh, who, this is is crazy, 59% of millennials who grew up in the church, who were a part of that 20% that, that went to church regularly, have stopped going to church and think it's unimportant. So people who, kids, students who who were raised in the church, who grew up in the church, who were a part of that 20% that attended, 59% of them, when they they come of age and they have their own choice and volition of, of being a part of a local body, of participating in the mission of Jesus through his people, say, no, thank you. 35% of millennials today actually have an anti-church stance, believing that church does more harm than good. You know, millennials take a, 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 this is actually interesting, every generation sort of that, that is emerging usually takes the rap for everything bad in the culture. So like the prevailing generation just sort of, yeah, young people today, they just, and that just continue on and on and on and on and on. And some of that might be fair and some of that is probably not fair. But for millennials specifically, those who are 22 to 41 years old, the, the data and the study that's been done on that generation um, comes back over and over and over again that what's most important to them is authenticity. Like, is it real? And so I I think when we think about those stats and think about the future of our culture and the future of the church specifically and what we're up against, the dangers that are coming against the mission of the church and his people, the prevailing question of the next generation is, is this real? Is it authentic? Is it true? Which actually ties into what C.S. Lewis said is the question that, that every person is asking throughout their life from birth to death two of them actually, is there a God? And maybe you're wrestling with that question today. Is there, 
Is there a designer, one who made me, one who knows me? Is there a purpose beyond myself? Is there value, meaning, and understanding beyond what I can taste and see and feel? Is there a God who made me, a designer, an author of all of this? And Lewis said the second question, which is kind of part of the first one is, can he be trusted? Can I trust God with my life, with, with my own value and purpose and meaning and my search for that? Can, can, is there a God and can he be trusted? Can he bear the weight of my worship? It's an interesting question, which by the way, you've heard me say before, if you wanna crush your kids, you wanna crush your spouse, you wanna crush your career, put the value and the weight of your worship upon them. They can't bear it. Only God can bear the weight of your worship because we were created and designed to worship him alone. He alone can be worshiped and bear the weight of that. He alone can handle that. You wanna crush the relationships in your life and the good things in your life, kids, spouse, all those things, worship them, make them the main thing and you'll crush them. That's what Lewis was trying to say. Think about this. Think about this. Our church, and you could say this about every local church in the world, is always, everyone watch this. Our church is always one generation away from extinction. Because Christianity, as the stats show us, is not passed along by your last name. It's not passed along because of your parents' faith. It's wonderful to have a lineage and a heritage of faith, but we don't inherit a faith. It's a personal choice for us to follow Jesus, to be introduced to him and find him and then choose every day to follow after him. Did you know that somewhere between 3,500 and 5,500 local churches in the United States close every year? That's almost 100 churches a week shut their doors in the United States every week, week after week after week after week. And you say, well, I thought Jesus said that he's gonna you know, build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Absolutely, but it doesn't mean our church. He's talking about the church. Why does that happen? Well, we're up against three sort of dangers, okay? I'm just gonna be very blunt about it. Uh, the world, the cultural belief that, yes, yeah, spirituality matters, but, but Jesus doesn't, and of course his church doesn't. Um, the flesh, right? Our own flesh that battles against the things of God. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. But the reality is that people come into the church and they experience what they experience in culture in the flesh. And they think like, if I come in, you know, to the church and I'm a part of it and there's so much infighting about you know, what we should be doing or not doing and the budget and the carpet color and all the different things and do, should we sing three songs? Should we sing four songs? You know, we joke the question in heaven, the number one question, where do announcements fit? Do they go at the beginning? Should they be at the end? Uh, all, the, all the big questions of, of, of life. If people come into the church and they experience the same thing that they do in culture, then well, what, what, what's the point? And the reality is, is that if we could stop our infighting as, as the church, capital C, we would realize there's an enemy. The third thing, there's a devil. There's an enemy that doesn't want us to know the mission of Jesus. And when we do hear the mission of Jesus, even when we say it together, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, wants to confuse us about how to accomplish that and to spend time infighting about how we do that rather than actually getting about the business of discipling people. But here's the, okay, some sobering news, right? But here's the good news. 
that the context that Jesus gave that mission in and the context that we're coming back to it and remembering it today is, is a chance for us to authentically turn back to something, a mission that Jesus gave that he said the gates of hell won't prevail against. It's a moment for us when we are battling the world, the devil, the flesh, to come back to the mission that Jesus gave to his people and to say there actually is something worth dying for and there's something worth living for. Here's the crazy thing, guys, is that people in our world are longing and and dying literally to find value, meaning, and purpose, and we have it. We've got it. And so we've got to get about the mission of the church and, and, and moving in, as Jesus said, going to people and demonstrating to them who Jesus is and that he's worth finding, that he's worth following. Did you know the context? Again, just, just we, we sit in a, in a world that is increasingly saying no to Jesus and no to the church. And in many ways, the very context that Jesus gave the mission is the same context we find ourselves in today. Paul David Tripp in his book, Lead, um, takes us back uh, to when Jesus gave the Great Commission. And he says, you know, there was a late, and remember, all of, in 40 days, Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's put uh, through a mock trial and, and torture, uh, finally a public execution. Uh, all of his disciples are what? They're running away and they're denying Jesus. They're, they're doubting that any of this was true. They're, they're, they're wondering, like, what can we actually believe? Uh, then they see the sight of the empty tomb, and they hear uh, from the women who witness it on that first Easter morning that Jesus is alive. So they go from grief and despair to euphoria. And then over 40 days, Jesus appears to them. Do you remember this? And he makes himself known to them and he teaches them and all kinds, put yourself in their shoes, the the range of emotions of what had happened in just a 40-day time period and what they must be thinking and experiencing. Imagine the confusion and the internal debates among themselves, uh, the doubts, the fears, the, the real grief of losing Jesus, the the wonderment mixed in with that grief about their future. And is this, is this really happening? Is Jesus alive? And, and is this true? And then I'm sure an overwhelming fear. Some of you walk in here today with an overwhelming, crippling fear in your life. And you know, so many of us, just really quickly, our fear is based in two things. Our past and the future And there's two words about our past and there's two words about our future that cause so much angst and fear. In our past, we look back and we say, you know, if only. If only I'd taken that job. If only I'd made a different decision. If if only, and you fill in the blank for you. And then some of us standing here today, we, our angst and our fear is based in the future. I think the disciples had both. Wondering, was this, was this real, what we experienced the last three plus years? And what does our future hold? And the two words that sort of hold us captive and, and, and cause so much angst and fear about our future is, what if? If only, what if? And I wonder this morning, for those of you here, for those of you watching, what words you're, you know, uh, kicking around in your head and your heart when you think about what if and if only, which one holds you more captive? 
for many of us, we're, we're living in the past, and you've heard me say before, we're walking, if the future is over here, the past is here, we're walking into the future, don't let me fall, like this, looking backwards. And for some of us, we're, we're, we're walking in, you know, we're, we're, we're walking in the future, we've got like a, a bungee cord on our back, like pulling us back to if only, and then for others of us, we, we, we look to the future and we think about, you know, our career and our families and our kids and we can just become overwhelmed with, well, what if this happens and what if that happens? What if that, all of these things were the context of the giving of this mission. And the disciples were experiencing all of that. And in that uh, context of what if and if only for each of them, Jesus gives this incredible mission, these final words. And I want to bring you just to the context a little bit further for a second. If you have the scriptures open to Matthew 28, where the Great Commission is found, in verse 16 and 17, what precedes the giving of the Great Commission is Jesus calling his 11 disciples to Galilee. And they went to this mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Evidently, they'd had a conversation, and they know they're meant to gather here for this, this final gathering together and this teaching. And when, this is what I want to, want, want to point out to you in verse 17. When the disciples saw Jesus, this is, this is amazing to me, uh, they worshiped him, which should be our response when we encounter God. Our response to his revelation to us is worship. They worshiped him, but look at these final words. Can you believe that? I wonder if you have doubts today. I wonder if even after following Jesus for years and years, you still carry secret doubts, fears about the past or about the future, wondering, is this authentic? Is it real? Is this, is this true? And I just want to highlight here that the, the context of the Great Commission is a lot of doubt and fear. And the disciples were experiencing many of the emotions that, that many of you bring into the room today throughout the circumstances of your life and the journey of your life that you've gathered from the past or you wonder about the future. And as they're standing in one of these final meetings with Jesus, and he's explaining to them what the purpose of their life and the church is gonna be and the work they're gonna do together to continue his mission, some of them looked at the literal Jesus physically standing before them and they doubted. And it's in the midst of that, and I don't want you to miss this, that Jesus gives his mission. And the way I put it in my notes is that Jesus gives mission in the midst of mess. In the middle of mess, of doubt, of fear, of wonderment, of excitement, of a range and roller coaster of emotions and human experiences, which all the disciples were feeling and many of you are experiencing and feeling in your life as well. As you look to the past, as you look to the future, Jesus gives his mission in the middle of that mess. And here's the deal, guys. Everybody watch this. When Jesus gives the Great Commission, this, this, this mission that the church is meant to be about, everything else begins to find its place. And that's what mission does. All the pennies begin to drop, so to speak, when Jesus gives the mission and the clarifying understanding of what the church is meant to be about. And when anything else is sitting in that top spot of mission, even good things, especially good things, nothing really fits. And so when Jesus gave this word about going into the world and making disciples and how to do that, and we'll talk about that next week, everything began to find its place. And the same is true in your life. 
that mission has a way of orienting everything else. One of the ways that we say it around here is keeping the main thing the main thing. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's telling them what the main thing is and how to keep it that way. And here's the deal that we can learn from this too, from 16 and 17, our passage. Were the disciples perfect in this? No. Fear and doubt and concern and what if and if only were all a part of the context of receiving the mission. And it's in the midst of all of that that Jesus gives it in order to be able to begin to order our lives rightly. So one of the things I want to point out here is that the disciples were not perfect, far from it. You could argue that they weren't even ready for this. Like it's way too soon. You're still doubting. Uh, you don't know enough. Um, you, you know, you're, you, you still, you're not mature enough. You, you need more time to be ready for this incredible mission that I'm calling you into. And yet Jesus gives them the mission anyway, even before arguably they're ready for it. And he does the same for us. You don't have to be perfect or ready to live on mission for Jesus. This is one of the ways I think that the enemy keeps us from living on mission is that you think you're not ready for it. And you think, well, when I know more, when I've, when I've journeyed you know, longer with Jesus, when I've done X, Y, Z, whatever, when I, when I stop doing this thing in my life that, I'm, that I don't want to do anymore, when I, whatever it might be for you, then I can live on mission for Jesus. I just want you to see that this, this big rock, so to speak, called mission sort of lands in the lake of the disciples' hearts and everything else ripples out from that. And the same is true in our life and our hearts. The disciples are ordinary people called to an extraordinary mission. And here's the deal, and I believe this. There are no extraordinary people. There are ordinary people who follow an extraordinary God. There's extraordinary circumstances in this world, but there's ordinary people who look to an extraordinary God and show up in incredible ways because they choose to find and, and follow him. Let me, let me just give a little passage to cement this. In Acts chapter 4, 13, uh, Acts records the beginning of the early church and how they're going to live out this great commission. Uh, early on, Peter and John are going out. They're the dynamic duo. And they're walking through Jerusalem. And the members of the same council that arrested Jesus and persecuted him were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. For they could see, look at this, they could see they were what? ordinary men. They're not extraordinary. They're ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. You've heard it said before, but, but it's worth saying again that, that, that God gifts those that he calls to his mission. He equips them he encourages them. And the way that he does that is by them being with him, following Jesus. Jesus said, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you into the men and the women that I've called you to be to fulfill my mission. Some of us are living with the lie that there's nothing extraordinary about me. I'm not an extraordinary person, so I can't be a part of an extraordinary mission. Well, neither were the disciples. Ordinary people who did extraordinary things because they followed an extraordinary God. And just speaking of the word commission, the word commission is kind of an interesting, strange word, but it's basically the word, the, the, um, the root word is mission, and the prefix is actually co, 
and co means with or together. So as we think about together as a church, fulfilling and living in the Great Commission, really the, the way to understand it is the together mission. What Jesus is saying to each of us is join me in the mission that I've already begun. Join me in the work that I'm already doing, our together mission. And the first thing that Jesus says, interestingly, after he gives this with mission with his disciples, this together mission that he invites them into, is to wait. So the Great Commission was given approximately 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, right before his ascension. And when he's on the Mount of Olives in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, and he's ascending, as Luke records in Acts chapter 1, he says to his disciples, wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Father, the Holy Spirit. So I just want to, again, let's put ourselves in the context of the disciples. They've heard this incredible mission. You're going to go into all the world. You're going to help people to find uh, me and follow after me to make disciples. And the first thing I want you to do in this mission is to wait. I want you to wait here because this co-mission comes with a promise, my presence and my power. And I want you to wait in Jerusalem for what was Pentecost, which was a a Jewish festival 50 days after Passover, Penta, meaning 50. So 50 days, so 10 days, you can do the math, public math here, but 40 days was the ascension and Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. So we know that it was approximately 10 days the disciples waited in this upper room in Jerusalem. And can you imagine going back to the scene of the crime of the crucifixion and all the, the council is looking for the disciples, those who follow Jesus, to kind of stamp out the, this way, this, 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 what would become Christianity. And they're in the upper room, probably thinking the doors are going to bust open and we're going to be arrested. And we're going to be publicly tortured and crucified the same way that Jesus was. And yet Jesus asked them to wait there. And there's something to that. Because part of what was happening that I want to finish here and teach is that Jesus was not only giving them this great mission, but watch this. He was undoing a shadow mission. And whenever Jesus gives us, you know, an authentic word of truth and, and, and the truth here of the, of the mission that we're meant to be about, it's, it's both giving us something and it's, and it's undoing something. And specifically here with the Great Commission and the giving of the Holy Spirit, it's undoing the Tower of Babel. And you say, Chris, what in the world? We're going all the way back to the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, most theologians believe is the beginning of humanism. I mean, you could mark it in Genesis 3 as well with the fall of man. But Genesis 11, the, the, the story of the Tower of Babel is the people coming together and basically saying, we can do this on our own. And, and, and now the branches of humanism have made their way into our culture in a myriad of different ways. But I want to take you back to the passage because not only was the Great Commission the giving of the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the, the understanding of what we're meant to be doing, our mission as a church, but it was also the undoing of a, of a shadow false mission in our lives. And so Genesis 11 verse 4 says this. This is a, a, the great reversal of uh, that, that goes along with the, with the Great Commission. Then they, the people of the earth, then said, come, let's build a great city for who? For ourselves, with a tower that reaches into the sky. And this will make us what? Followers of Jesus? No, the shadow mission of the human heart 
is not to find significance and value and identity in Jesus, but it's meant to find significance, value, meaning, purpose in ourselves. This will make us famous and will keep us from being what? Scattered all around the world. And so what I want you to see here is that, you know, as they're talking about staying together and, and making a name for themselves and building a, a tower that basically would achieve heaven on their own, their own merits, their own works, what Jesus is doing here in the giving of the, the Holy Spirit from the Father and the giving of this, this mission was to undo that sin and that understanding that I have to achieve and find meaning and value and purpose and mission from within in my own life. And I think you would agree with me that culturally we wrestle with that. We struggle with that. So many people are looking to within themselves to find their mission and their purpose and value. And not only that, they believe they can reach heaven. You know, we can, we can, we can come to understand ourselves well enough to reach fulfillment and, and find enough value in ourselves and collect enough things in our life to, to find meaning. In fact, I brought a, there is a reason for this. I brought a bucket. Um, because I think it symbolizes Genesis 11. And we're, you know, we're, we're sort of born with this bucket, if you will, called the human heart. And if it's not filled with Jesus and the mission and the value and the purpose that, that he and he alone can bring to our hearts, again, back to Ecclesiastes, there's eternity in our hearts and we, we, we long for all of those things. And, and, and apart from finding them in God himself, we'll, we'll fill our hearts with all kinds of things. And so we walk through life with this bucket. Maybe you've got a bucket today you're walking. And, and, and you go from relationship to relationship, from friendship to friendship, from career to career, from, from you know, self-help book to self-help book, from whatever it is to try to fill your bucket. And you're living with this premise that at the end of my life, I hope that I've put enough in my bucket that I'll, I'll feel like, like I've accomplished something, that like I've had meaning or, or, or purpose. Or maybe people will gather around and say, man, look, look, look at that. They, they were able to fill up their bucket with all these different things and celebrate all the things I've accumulated in my life. And actually, this idea of sort of living with a bucket and walking around and collecting and just getting what I can from other people finds its roots right here. We're making a great city for ourselves, a tower that reaches heaven that we can do on our own. We'll make ourselves famous. Other people will know us and it'll keep us from being scattered. I can collect all of my things and I can hold on to them. And I become a collector of relationships, of people, of experiences. And I hope that over my lifetime, I can collect enough to feel valuable and, and have purpose and feel like my life had meaning and, 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 and mission. And this is what's happening. And oh, by the way, like this is what's still happening. And those three things, the world, the devil, and the flesh are still trying to convince us that you need to have a bucket that you're just taking from other people and filling up. And when you fill this one up, you just get a bigger bucket. You just keep taking from other people. And the reality is, guys, is there's a hole in the bottom of the bucket and you'll never fill it. That's the reality. And that's what happened here. And the beauty of the Great Commission and the giving of the Holy Spirit is Jesus is saying, I'm enough. My presence is enough. The mission that I've given you, this worldwide mission is enough. And so if you juxtapose that passage with Matthew 28, 19, look, I mean, this is all about collecting and staying and making a name for ourselves. Look at, look at verse 19 of the Great Commission. Therefore, 
And remember last week we said when there's a therefore, we should ask the question, what is it? And in this instance, we should say, what am I here for? What are we here for together as a church? And Jesus is going to answer that with these words. Go. Not, not stay and collect. Not let's, let's, let's stay here so we don't have to be scattered around the, the world and go to other people that we don't like or that aren't like us. No, no, go. And go and do what? Make disciples of all nations. Did you know that Jesus' ministry for three plus years was primarily focused on, on Israel, on the Jews, and, and revealing himself as the promised Messiah to them? But this is the first time that Jesus has begun to expand that and say, no, the mission isn't just for Jews, it's to all the world, it's to, to all people, every man, woman, and child. Guys, Christianity, following Jesus, is a going faith. It's a faith that has movement. The gospel is always meant to orient us towards people who aren't a part of the church. William Tyndall, who was one of the forerunners of the, of the Reformation, you may recognize Tyndall Publishers that carries his name. He translated all of the Old Testament into English. He translated half of the New Testament into English, and his work became the basis of the King James Bible that was, began to be widely distributed, and of course the printing press and the advent of all that, and getting God's word into people's hands. Did you know he was killed for that he was strangled and his body burned at the stake and that happened guess who did it the church because they didn't want God's word to be in people's hands they didn't think that they were extraordinary enough to have it and there were other reasons as well but Tyndall said this the church is the only institution in the world that exists for those outside of it And that's the way that Jesus oriented it, to be outward facing. We want to be inwardly healthy, but outwardly focused and facing. So Jesus said, go, our Christianity is not a gathering and huddle up and, you know, a holy huddle and us four and no more. It's constantly thinking about an open chair and, and who hasn't found Jesus yet? Who can we help to find Jesus and to follow passionately after him? You know, we introduced this word a couple of weeks ago called oikos. It's, a, it's a, a strange Greek word, but has really great meaning. Oikos was the Greek word used all throughout the New Testament for household. And it's, it's appropriate, I think, for us to translate it now into our relational world. The people that God has placed closest to us that don't know Jesus and need help being discipled to follow after Jesus. And I want you to think about that. Maybe the 10 to 20 people that God's placed in your family, your neighborhood, co-workers, people that aren't just random that God has assigned to you to, to, to go and fulfill this great commission. Here's another way to think about it. Who are people that are close to you but are far from God? Who are the people in your life that are close to you relationally or in proximity but are far from God? And moreover, as you think about that, and that's a great homework assignment this week, who's close to me but far from God? Who's my oikos, my relational world? Who might God be calling me to go and to to make a disciple, to help define and follow Jesus? If nobody pops up on your list, then that's the prayer. Ask God to help you uh, find people, to, to, to bring people into your life, to assign you people that you're meant to go live this out with. And the final thing I wanna say here, about that word making, I think it's important to highlight this, that disciples are made and not born. 
Disciples are made, not born. We never, guys, we never stumble into following Jesus passionately. It's always with intentionality. We, we don't just passively learn to follow Jesus in our lives and every area of our lives to follow Jesus and to invite him into our relationships, our, our sexuality, our finances, the things that are, we, we, you know, we say, Jesus, you're allowed in the spiritual part of my life, but not in all these other areas of my life. And the journey of discipleship, uh, which means to follow Jesus, the journey of discipleship is inviting Jesus more and more and more into every area of my life, and it's a lifelong pursuit. And, and that doesn't happen on accident. Jesus said, come and follow me, I'll make you. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Disciples are made and not born. Following Jesus in this culture is walking up a down escalator. It requires intentionality. And here's why. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 16, 24. He says to his disciples, those who follow after him, if anyone wants to be my follower, which that's what disciple means, you must give up your own way. We'll just stop there. If you want to follow Jesus, you got to give up your own way. And I don't know about you, but that's not a one-time event. Giving up my way is an every moment, every day event. It's constantly choosing the Jesus way to, to go further what Jesus said, to take up my cross, my, my instrument of execution, to die to self and to follow after Jesus. This is the heartbeat of what it means to be a disciple, to not only help people find Jesus for who he really is, but then to truly follow after him. I can say in my own personal life, I found Jesus when I was in the fourth grade. I didn't really learn how to follow Jesus until I was in college. And someone began to take interest in my faith and help to disciple me. And that was a long line of people who were a part of that. And I bet that's true in your life as well. And the, the word picture that I wanted to give you for the Great Commission, maybe you have one of these in your yard, is a sprinkler. Because to me, as you think about Genesis 11, the beginning of humanism, and the idea that I can just make it on my own, we can do it on our own, we just stay together, we just collect things, we take things from other people and experiences and relationships, and at the end of my life, I hope my bucket is full. The juxtaposition of that is what's known as an impact sprinkler that immediately takes what, what comes to it and disperses it to other people in its realm and its world. As far as it can cast it, as long as it can, you know, can shout it and spread it, that's what it's doing. And so I want to I leave you with this picture. I hope you won't forget it. That on our own, in our flesh, and in our culture, it says that you just take your bucket and you walk through life and you just get whatever you can from other people. And then hopefully at the end of your life, you'll have enough in your bucket where you look down at it and you go, well, hopefully I have value, meaning, and purpose. But again, there's a hole in the bottom of the bucket. It's never enough. It's never enough. Or what Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it to the fullest. And not just for yourself, but for other people. Do you know what happens right after Genesis 11? Go and read it this week. God calls Abraham and he makes a people for himself. And the first thing he asked Abraham to do was to leave his home, his familiarity, and go someplace else and trust and follow him. And then he says these words to Abraham, I'm gonna bless you 
and I'm gonna make your name great. Not so you can be famous and just so you can be great, but what? So that you can go and be a blessing to other people. And he said, moreover, all the families of the earth, including each of us here today, will be blessed because of you. What if we took that seriously? What if you said, you know what? I'm not gonna live my life as a bucket just collecting from other people and taking whatever I can to try to find purpose and meaning and mission. Jesus has already given it to me. And the first thing I wanna do with that when I receive it is to share it with people in my oikos, in my relational world, to go and do what Jesus said, to go and make disciples of all nations, which by the way, I think for each of us, all nations means your relational world. Did you know 95% of people who follow Jesus say they started following Jesus, they found him and they they begin to follow him because someone in their relational world invited them to. So when we hear that word about going into all the world, it's great, our scope is all the world. But I wanna challenge you today to think about your relational world that God placed you in this time, in this place, in this family, in, in, in your job, in your profession for a reason, and he's assigned you people. So here's the bottom line. Are you a bucket or are you a sprinkler? Are you collecting? Just gonna get all my blessings as much as I can and try to create a mission for myself, make myself famous? Or do I know I have a mission from Jesus? And I'm here to help as many other people as I can to find Jesus and to follow after him. To Christ be the glory today. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your invitation. And it is an invitation. You never accepted volunteers. You always invited people to follow you. And so you've given us an invitation to come and die to ourselves and to be born again into life because of you to choose not our way, but your way. And so I pray for each of my dear friends here today, for those who are watching, that you would help us even in this moment to make a choice to follow you. For some of us, it might be the very first time where we're saying, Jesus, I'm turning from myself, my sin, my brokenness, my own way, my own bucket that I've tried to fulfill my life with, and I'm turning to you. I'm inviting you into my life by grace through my simple faith and trust. And for others of us, we've prayed that prayer, we found you, Jesus, but we need help every day to make a choice to follow you in every area of our hearts to say yes to you and no to ourselves. Would you help us as a church with this? as we heard those statistics as we began today, would you help us as a church to be faithful to the mission that you've given to us to go and to make disciples? Would you help us to be serious about the business of discipleship, of helping people follow you, that can go and help other people find and follow you? And we'll give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.
We have no ordinary mission. God has given us an extraordinary mission as followers of Jesus. And last week we told you about a new initiative that we're launching next month called New City Academy. And New City Academy is the way that we want to equip you to help others find and follow Jesus. Our first course that'll start next month is Old Testament. We're gonna be looking at God's redemptive plan through the Old Testament. The exciting news is we're almost full. I think we have maybe a little over 10 places available for New City Academy. So if you've thought about registering for New City Academy, I wanna encourage you to do so quickly. But I also wanna let you know that we're gonna be adding new courses all throughout the year, and we're gonna repeat courses. So you're gonna have opportunity to be a part of New City Academy if you don't make this first class. So you can find out more about that at newcity.us academy. If you are new with us this morning, we wanna tell you again how glad that we are that you're with us. And we would love the opportunity to get to know you. So if you can drop by Connection Point, it's out in the courtyard and say hello, we would love to give you a gift and get to know you. If you need prayer this morning, we want to invite you to join us up front after this service, or you can write your request down on the back of the Connect card and either give it to a host, put it in the giving box, or drop it off at Connection Point. And lastly, if you would like to respond in worship today through giving, you can do that at newcity.us give or in the giving boxes as you leave. Now, before you leave, I'd love to share a benediction with you. Will you extend your hands? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. Have a wonderful week, New City.